Well, last weekend I was talking to one of my sons, my youngest son, who lives uh, in Chicago, right downtown in a high-rise with his wife, and he was wondering out loud if he, what it would be like to raise children in such a large city. Would his children have any freedom? And he, he reminisced with me about when he was 12 years old and we would let him ride his bike across a busy road into another subdivision near us to a lake, carrying his fishing rod and his tackle box, and he would go fishing there all afternoon. And he couldn't imagine his child having that kind of freedom in downtown Chicago. And I told him it was, it was much better when I was young, that when I was 12, growing up in Ann Arbor, my parents would let me ride my bike five or six miles down to the Huron River and stay there all day and fish if I wanted to. And then I told him a story that my grandfather told me, and I have a family album with a picture to prove this, that when he was 12 years old in 1906, he and three 12-year-old friends rode their bikes from their home in Muncie, Indiana, to Toledo, Ohio. It took them four days. And there were no telephones to call home at night and say you were okay. My, how times have changed. Let's face it, in 1900, there were more God-fearing people in the country in which we live than there are today. And those words, God-fearing, may just be antique words to you, but they're biblical words, and they describe something very true. There were more people in America 100 years ago who had a basic conviction that not only does God exist, but God rules over human life, and he has given to us his moral law by which he firmly intends for us to live, and he evaluates every human life by our conformity to the Ten Commandments. And, and so serious is about, about this is he that there will be a final evaluation of every human life at the last judgment. And the problem is, few people today live with that conviction, that belief. Now, the passage just read to us is... Um, a part of the first message of Isaiah after his call to be a prophet that is recorded in chapter 6 of the book. Uh, It happens that right after Isaiah was called, he opens with a first prophecy that begins in chapter 7 and goes through chapter 10. It's really a two-part prophecy that that deals with a specific historical situation. Isaiah was called to preach to this nation about 80 years after they had been divided into two countries made up of Israelites throughout the 12 tribes. But the country to the north was called Israel, and the country to the south was called Judah. In 733 B.C., which must have been shortly before this uh, was written that Mary Kay read for us, the northern kingdom had been defeated in battle by the Assyrian Empire coming down from the north, and uh, they had simply been taken over as a province of the Assyrian Empire, but allowed to live in their land. Now, ten years later, The northern kingdom would be uh, again defeated and now depopulated. The majority of the population of the Jewish people were moved out into different places in the Assyrian Empire. And the, the area was repopulated by displaced people groups from other places in the empire called Gentiles. And because of this, 
because that had just happened, Judah, the southern kingdom, which retained the priesthood and the temple and the kings who followed in the line of David, Judah was trembling in fear that what had just happened to the northern kingdom was going to assault them as well. Now, prophecy is always difficult to interpret. And it's difficult because of what I would call the prophetic perspective. The prophets had a perspective that you have to try to understand. And the Apostle Paul uh, understands it uh, in this way. If you read in 1 Peter, as I have on the screen, he wrote concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And what he's saying is that the prophets were inspired, but when they saw things, they saw and recorded things that they didn't fully understand, even though they saw those things clearly. In fact, what they were unable to understand was the time frame in which these things were going to occur, whether they were close or far away. And they were under, unable to understand the surrounding circumstances that would make what they were seeing significant. So in chapter 7 through 10, this is displayed a number of times in what goes on. They saw things clearly, but they didn't know if they were close or far away. And sometimes they were both at the same time. Uh, twice, in fact, three times in these chapters, there's a prediction of the birth of a child. And the prediction of the child has some significance in God's eternal purpose. The first time is in chapter 7. Isaiah is meeting with the king of the southern kingdom, king of Judah, named Ahaz. And he seeks to persuade him that he shouldn't give in to Assyria and just make uh, a treaty with them, an alliance with them to be a, a conquered kingdom. He, he wants them to stand up against a lie and trust God to deliver them. And what he says at that point is a child will be born who will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then he says this in chapter 7 and verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, this is a, an enigmatic statement. We know from the New Testament that Emmanuel, God with us, refers finally, most completely, to Jesus Christ. But it's evident that the prophecy has both a near and a far fulfillment. And... Uh, Isaiah was trying to understand what that means. Now, what those words mean, before the boy knows how to choose, uh, the evil, refuse the evil and choose the good, it means before the child comes to a point of moral responsibility for his own actions, which in Hebrew thought would have been somewhere between 10 and 12 years of age when the child would take upon himself the responsibility to keep the law at what is now called bar mitzvah. Before that happens, Assyria will be out of the picture. You don't have to worry about them. That's what the prophecy says. Now, what Isaiah saw was something like this. He saw, like you see these two discs in this illustration, think of a quarter and a dime put up against each other, and you, you look at them, you can see the smaller disc, and you can see the larger disc when you look straight on at it. But then, if you see from the side, you might see it like this. You, you find out that the two discs are actually separated. But you can't tell that when you're looking straight on. 
That's what prophecy in the Old Testament is like. Straight on, you can't tell whether the event or events that you're envisioning are one event at one time or one event that has two different kinds of fulfillment or whether it's actually referring to two different events. But from the side, later, like from the New Testament perspective, sometimes we're able to see that, oh, there were two different things being talked about there. This is what happens with the first and second coming of Christ, as we'll see. The, the prophets saw Christ, the Messiah, coming and establishing the new heavens and new earth, but they didn't realize there was a long time between the beginning of the fulfillment of that and the first coming of Christ and his birth as a baby, and the end, the final fulfillment of that at his second coming, which we're still looking for. That's the prophetic perspective. They either saw One event that had a near and a far fulfillment, or they saw two events that they couldn't separate. And that's what the Emmanuel prophecy is like. It apparently has a near fulfillment that was related to Ahaz himself. We don't know if the boy that's spoken of is his son, who was born in his family, Isaiah's son, or whether he's just using an illustration. But before this child comes to a point of moral responsibility, Assyria will be destroyed. And in fact, uh, about... 12 or 14 years later, that's exactly what happened. And um, we know that there's also a far fulfillment of that prophecy, that the true child to be born, who would have the name and own the name Emmanuel, God with us, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who would finally save his people from their sins. The near fulfillment was like an initial proof positive of God's deliverance that he would bring the final deliverance through the Messiah. Now, if you look in this section of the Bible, in chapter 11, right before the passage, or excuse me, 8, right before the passage that Mary Kay read to us, Isaiah speaks to the southern kingdom. He's speaking to Judah, to Ahaz, and to the people of God at that time. As they are trembling in fear, anticipating the onslaught of Assyria against them and what might happen as a result. And what he does in that paragraph is he contrasts the faithful remnant, the God-fearing people among the nation, with the majority of people who are living there whose lives are filled with outward conformity but inward corruption. People who have mixed the worship of the Lord and the temple and the words of the Bible with pagan worship and idolatry. People whose lives are characterized by blatant hypocrisy but who claim moral superiority in their paganism, much like today. For the remnant, he says in this passage, for the God-fearing people, there is hope, eternal hope. For the faithless, there will be destruction. And that paragraph brings us to the passage that Mary Kay read for us in chapter 9. And here we have another prediction of the birth of a child. But this time, there's no near and far fulfillment. This isn't talking about a child who's going to be born during their lifetime. We know now it's pointing ahead purely to the coming of the Messiah. And and, uh, this is the king who will descend from David, who will reign on David's throne forever without end. And no time frame is put on this. He didn't understand the time in which this would be fulfilled. But it's a certain prediction. And remember my conversation with my son last week. The the God-fearers are few today, and it gives those of us who love God and seek to obey him, it gives us cause to feel small and uncertain. At times as we live now, 
the people of God tremble because it's so difficult to live among a mass of people whose hearts have turned away from God and who are certain of very many things, but of the thing they are most certain of, it's that Christian faith is wrong. And we are trying to figure out how to make our way through the maze of a barren world on our pilgrimage of life at the present time. Now, I suppose every generation has found it difficult to raise children, if you stop to think about it. After all, at any time in history, a parent who has a child has to raise his or her child to live at a time and in a culture which the parent was not raised in. Because time is always moving forward and things are always changing. So 200 years ago, most people were farmers. And they had to raise a generation who would move into the cities and form the backbone of the Industrial Revolution. They didn't know what cities were all about, but they had to raise their children to do that, and that was difficult. Peaceful generations in the past who have never known war have had to raise a generation who will know war and have fought in the grimmest of the wars in the last century. People who only knew games and books and talking had to raise children who were going to grow up with radio and listen to it every day, and children who grew up with radio had to raise children who grew up with television that they had no knowledge of when they were growing up, and on and on and on, and we are experiencing the same thing. It's always difficult to raise children, but of all indications, all indications are that you and I, in the last part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, we are being asked to raise children in an unprecedented time where the change is so dramatic and so complete that it's difficult to know how to act, how to respond, what to do. We can't conceive of a world in which any parent would send their 12-year-old son off on a bike trip for four days with no contact. That world doesn't exist anymore. We're concerned to let them go to the neighbors because we're not sure what they'll be exposed to there. And the kind of uncertainty that we experience and the fear that we feel as a result of that seems to grow every year. You know, we have a church covenant posted in the lobby we established a couple of years ago. It's what our members affirm. And let me just read to you the first two of the bullet points. This is what our members commit themselves to. It says, We will hold marriage in honor according to God's design by living in complete fidelity if married and by living in complete chastity if single. We will strive to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example and wise words seek the salvation of our family and friends. There was a world not so long ago in which those two sentences made sense. But that world is no more. There was a time when those words didn't have to be written down because people feared God. And even if they weren't Christians, they understood what that was all about. But I have to tell you something. If you're a young person now and you long to be that kind of person, to raise that kind of family, then I tell you, you had better put your roots down in a church of God's people who are serious about doing that and helping one another to do it because you will not be able to do it alone. You will be like a coal taken out of the fireplace in a burning fire and set on the hearth that soon grows out, goes, goes out and grows cold. Isaiah chapter 9 is meant to point the remnant the God-fearing people of Isaiah's day, to hope. And it's the same hope to which we are pointed today. 
These are the people to whom God has given assurance in chapter 8 that unlike the faithless, they have a certain hope that lies in the future. And he wants them and us as well to trust God and to tremble at God's word, not to tremble at the future that we fear. And to those who went before in 730 B.C. or so, um, this hope was certain, but what it meant was unclear. And the opposite is true for us today. Now, the hope is very clear, as we'll see, but... Whether we will do it is uncertain. Whether we will believe it enough to stake our lives on it is what the real question is. Now, if you look at the passage, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, he first describes the hope in general terms in the first three verses, and then he defines the hope or explains it in some detail in verses 4 through 7. So let's look first how he describes the hope, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In the New Testament, when this is quoted, it is referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And that's because the word nations meant the non-Jewish nations in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Now, this... Um, part of the northern kingdom he's referring to is two specific tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. And he refers to them for a specific purpose. You see, in 733, shortly before, whenever it was, this prophecy was made, the northern kingdom had been defeated by uh, Assyria, and they had done it by coming down from the north in the first two tribal areas of the northern kingdom were Zebulun and Naphtali. They were also called later, after the tribes settled the land, Galilee. And by the New Testament, they were called Galilee of the Gentiles because they no longer had a majority of Jews there. And uh, they were the first place that the Assyrians devastated. They didn't destroy or take over the, uh, the whole land. They simply made it a province, but they decimated that part of the northern kingdom. In other words, they had been treated with contempt. And he says that will no longer be the case. In this future time, that will no longer be the case. It's out of Galilee that this hope is going to come. In fact, what's significant is that 10 years after this or so, in 722, the Assyrians, because of the the northern kingdom wasn't acting very docile they came in and they depopulated it took all the jews out and replaced them with gentile people and isaiah begins by predicting that that is going to there's going to come a time when that area that has been so dishonored will be honored again by the way jesus came out of galilee that's where he was born where he was raised where he began his ministry Then you read verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And here he describes it not as simply honor in general terms. He's going to honor a region that was dishonored. Now he uses the word light. And the remnant is pictured as those who have wandered in darkness, trembling at the future. God-fearing people have tried to trust in God, but they've stumbled and struggled with that. And what they can trust in is the certainty that where there has been no light, God is going to enlighten them. He's going to bring light. And then verse 3, he's going to bring joy. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they... uh, 
divide the spoil. And, and he describes it using two metaphorical pictures here. It's the kind of joy you experience at harvest. When farmers bring the crops in from the field, and if it's been in a particularly abundant harvest and the work is done, it's that kind of joy, he says. It's the kind of joy that you experience at the end of a successful military campaign when you're all done as you divide the spoil. He's just using metaphorical pictures. It's going to be joy. So what's he say? General terms. There's going to be honor where there's been dishonor. There's going to be light and there's going to be joy. And now he begins to explain in more depth what that means. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. The his apparently is the nation referred to in the previous verse. And he's using images here from the Exodus. In fact, five of the words are very prominent in the Exodus. Um, the, the burden, the yoke, the staff, the shoulder, the rod, all of those things are used in Exodus to describe the oppression of the people in bondage in Egypt hundreds of years before. And he says, just like that, there's going to be a release of bondage. There's going to be deliverance from oppression. And then he changes the image as in the day of Midian. Interesting reference. That's referring back to the judges. And and it happens that Gideon in chapter 6 through 8 of Judges was the deliverer of which tribes? Zebulun and Naphtali. Just like that, he says, there's going to be deliverance. God is going to bring complete deliverance from oppression in this future time. And then verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And this is simply picturing a military victory. In this case, the people are just pictured as going out and collecting the spoil and burning it. They are destroying all the implements of war. He expands on this in verse 7. At the end of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. What he's saying is that he is going to establish a king and a kingdom that will never end. It will be the end of all conflict and the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. So what does he say? He says, first of all, there's going to be honor and light and joy. And then when he begins to get more specific, there's deliverance from oppression, the end of all conflict. And then uh, verse 6 is really the, the main point. This explains how this is all going to be brought about. For because a child is born to us, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we're going to look at these four titles this month, so I'm not going to take time to describe them now. They apparently describe throne names given to the Messiah, which we'll discuss. But um, I just want to note that all of this that he has said, all of this hope that he puts in the future of the faithful people of God in 730 B.C. and for us as well, all of this hope is centered on this person, The Messiah, the son who will be given to them, who is the one who will be the descendant of David to reign on David's throne over his kingdom and over the earth forever. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Christ, the Messiah, the light to the Gentiles, the hope of the world. Isaiah predicted it. Even that he would come from Galilee. He predicted it 700 and more years before it came to pass. But in closing, I want to note two things about the passage that stand out, about the whole passage. One is this. Will you note that it's written in past tense? 
Well, if you look at it carefully, you'd say, well, the first sentence isn't. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Will be, future tense. He's describing something in the future. Well, actually, the way it was written, there is no verb. In Hebrew, it simply says, no gloom for her who is in anguish. And then you go into past tense until you get to the end. It's all written as though it has already come to pass. Uh, he, he has made glorious. He has made glorious the land. Uh, I'm sorry, lost my place. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen, past tense, a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And on and on. It's all written in past tense. And the reason is, Isaiah prophetically sees the end as though it was already done. I mean, this is how certain it is. It's already accomplished. So certain is the word of God, and so certain was Isaiah about what he saw, that he speaks of the distant future as though it's already an accomplishment. And, and, and that's important to us. He gives us lenses through which we were meant to see our lives. We see our lives not in light of whatever troubles go on at the present time, not in light of whether we are a vast number of people worshiping God and loving him, or we're a faithful remnant in a huge society of hypocrisy and apostasy. We see our lives in light of God's eternal purpose and his ultimate victory. You should see your life that way. But second, I want you to note this. Even though Christ has come from Galilee, he has been born to us, and even though, though in prophetic terms we are certain that this will all be completed, because even now he reigns on David's throne at the right hand of God, even now he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, he's all of those things. Even now that's true. We have to admit, not everything written here has come to pass. Not yet has all oppression ceased. Not yet are we ready to destroy all the implements of war because that's a past thing for humanity. Not yet is there peace throughout the world and the light and the peace and the joy and the honor that we celebrate and worship when we meet together before God. Not yet is that universal as this pictures. It hasn't yet come to pass. And that's because I want you to think back to that picture that I used earlier. We, too, live between two kinds of fulfillment of this passage. Isaiah, like I said, as the prophets in the Old Testament did, he looked forward to the final complete fulfillment when Messiah came in his image, in what he saw, all would be right. The kingdom of God would come. But when it was fulfilled... What we find out is that involves two distinct points with a long period in between, a first coming of Christ and a second coming of Christ. The first coming in which he inaugurates the kingdom and he sets in motion all of these things so that we live as though they were already fulfilled in the past tense. And a second coming in which he completes everything that he's inaugurated and the oppression is done forever. And the kingdom is established forever. And war and sorrow is over forever. You see, we live during that time in between. So in one sense, we're like the people of the past. They looked forward and they saw the fulfillment. But they knew there was some period of time between them and 730 B.C. and the coming of the Messiah. Even if they could only see unclearly the time and circumstances, 
And in the same way, now we see it much more clearly because Christ has come the first time. And he's told us there will be a second time when he comes. But we live in between those two times. And so we can tremble in fear and uncertainty in between the times, the already and the not yet. But we can also make the choice to live by faith. And that's what this passage calls us to do, to live by faith in the hope that is certain that God gives. So do you trust in an earthly government or in the government of the Son whose reign will never end? Governments will all end, including ours. Are you relying on your 401k for your security for the future? Or are you looking ultimately to the riches of God's grace, regardless of whether our whole system prospers or fails? And do you think it's your own character that's going to determine your experience in this world and guarantee the future? Or is it the character of our promise-keeping God? I mean, the whole point of Christian worship, the whole reason we meet together, or we gather alone, we get alone with God with our Bible and we worship Him, the whole point, especially in times of fear and insecurity, is to help us fix our eyes firmly on the certainty that God will keep his promises and to live in light of that. God grant that it may be so. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that in fact we have this certainty that the prophets spoke of. You have increased our joy. You have brought about a cessation of all war and we just burn the implements of war. You have established a kingdom that will never end under a prince of peace whose rule is complete and perfect and is one of love. We pray that you would help us to live that way, even at this Christmas season, with the kind of certainty that is so rare in this world, a certainty that though we are not in control, you are. We pray this in Jesus' name.